Glad to be here. All right, glad you're here. Thank you for uh, worshiping God with us. Thank you for taking time on your day to be with us, to uh, be with the Lord, be with each other. Let's pray if we get going here. Lord, thank you again for your love for us. Lord, thank you for the good news of Jesus. And, uh, Lord, thank you that um, there is a calling upon each life. Lord, there's a calling to be a part of the body of Christ, to be a member, to function, to be in unity, to love one another, to serve one another. And Lord, I pray, God, that um, even as we're working through this series, Lord, I, I do pray. Lord, that each one of us would find that place where we belong in the body of Christ. That we would see, God, that your calling upon us is so real. And that, Lord, we would honor you with the things that you've called us to do in the family of God that you've called us to be a part of. In Jesus' name, amen. Today's part four of uh, this series that we're going through. Um, if you are not familiar, we are working through a series called I Am a Church Member. Uh, what does it mean to be uh, a part of the body of Christ? Um, more than, again, when you hear the word, are you a member of the church? A lot of people have kind of different thoughts based on how you were raised, uh, your name being on a roll, uh, a piece toward, I'm, I'm a member of that church. We're actually going beyond that. Um, we're actually talking about, in reference to First Corinthians 12, where Paul used the analogy that we are a part of the body of Christ, that we are all members of the body of Christ, and each part is necessary, and Paul uses this analogy of a human body, and he said just as, uh, just as a human body functions and all the parts and the, the members of, the, of that body function to make it a healthy body, so is the body of Christ, and you need every part functioning the way it needs to function in order for the body of Christ to be healthy. And so, we're asking these questions of, of what does it mean to be a member of the body of Christ? What is God saying to us as members of this church? How do we become a church that doesn't just become another statistic and eventually die? We want to get some of these statistics about what is happening to the churches in the United States. You know, churches are closing and uh, there's a downturn in attendance like never before. And, and, and how does this church, specifically our church, how does it not become a statistic like a lot of churches are happening? And so I think that the Lord wants to challenge our hearts today in how do we walk as a healthy body. Week one was becoming a functioning member. Every part is necessary. There are no parts that are um, unnecessary that we just do without. Every part must be functioning in order for the church to be a healthy body. Uh, week two, we talked about becoming a unifying member, how unity is critical and essential for the church to succeed. And that is why there's so much taught more in the New Testament on unity than heaven and hell. And so that gives you an idea of the importance, and that, that helps you also understand why there is a battle against unity in the body of Christ. That the enemy wants to drive a wedge between us as maybe individuals or groups or factions. And um, I talked about how, you know, the, the enemy would like for us to fight these insignificant battles, trivial battles. Um, 
and get us focused on that. I don't know why I lost my slides over here. Let's see what happens. Timing out on me or something. Let's see what happens. If it does it again, we'll just figure out what we're going to do. Love technology. But unity is so critical, um, and, and the enemy will try to get us to fight battles that don't matter. And, and instead of fighting together for one common purpose, he tries to get us to focus on things that don't really matter. Uh, last week we talked about becoming a serving member, how to get away from this me-oriented, self-serving idea that a lot of people come in and, and they make the church about themselves and what am I getting and what are you doing for me? And instead following Christ, where Jesus said, I came to be a servant and slave. I came to lay my life down and he showed his extent of his love by washing the disciples' feet and he said the Son of Man came to serve. And he said, this is how my kingdom operates. This is what it means to be great in the kingdom. And if you can catch this, you will make an impact. And if we're following him, he's going to lead us to church. And it's not serve, and then you get to finally that place in that pinnacle where you don't serve anymore. He said, no, that's the calling of all your life is to serve, to lay your life down for others. And so we focus on what it means to be a servant member. So today we continue with the fourth session from the fourth chapter of the book, um, and it says, I will pray for my church leaders. And it's interesting that as a church leader, I'm going to talk about why it's important for your church leaders. And so, it's one of those where, you know, maybe it's just a brought somebody from the outside. And I'm like, no, I think I can talk about this. So, but part of today, I want to open my, my own heart to you and be a bit transparent and share some of my own personal things as we move along today and why uh, it's important to pray for our leaders. Again, but wh- why, why this message? Why is this important? Why would Tom Rainer, as he's looking at churches across the United States, we see these trends happening? And obviously, we can see those obvious ones of the importance of unity. And he says these churches that are fading, you know, unity is a big deal. They, they stop being unified or they stop serving and they've been inward focused. Or large members of the church body have stopped functioning, and you can see how those cause downturns and, and, and churches to ultimately die. This is also an important one, is, is where church leaders, because of the, the role, and, and again, I'm going to get into this in a moment, but it's not more valuable, but what happens is just like the Old Testament, remember, the people loved Moses as he was leading them to freedom, but when things started happening, they wanted to kill Moses. And so you have this, this, this kind of uh, going back and forth where when things are going great, we love you. When things are going bad, we're going to kill you. And, and, and that can happen is where we, where we begin to make, again, the battle about a person. Um, and, it, and, and I remember uh, Pastor Tom, who I served with many years ago, he said something that I thought was very profound once. He said, when, he goes, I make a deal with you. When things are going good, don't give me the credit. When things are going bad, don't blame me. So I thought, that's wisdom. So uh, that, that's very good. And so why this message? Again, because we desperately need your prayers as church leaders. Because I'm going to make a shocking statement here that's going to maybe cause a little, you know, maybe a ripple effect here, but we're not perfect. I know, I know that's hard to believe. There's a gasp in the building. But before I move on, I want all of our ministry leaders to stand up, our, our deacons, our elders, and ministry leaders. Will you stand, please? Because this message is not just about me. 
to think about people that serve and leadership in your spouses too, because they are part of the package. It's so important that we recognize our ministry leaders, and I want to, I just before we move on, is on behalf of all of these folks, we desperately need your prayers. We're, we're not perfect, but I, I call it a joy to serve with you people. It is just an awesome privilege, and I thank God for each one of you, and for everyone else who desperately need your prayers. But I just wanted to acknowledge you guys and say thank you, and you can, you can be seated, but God bless you guys. We need your prayers so much. Um, I've talked about this before, but I am amazed that God uses human beings as leaders. Uh, in His sovereignty and great wisdom, He does that, and I ask the question, why a lot? Why, why do we use leaders, uh, uh, you know, human leaders? And say, these people are going to be the ones that lead my church. And I'm just amazed at that. And I think probably it's because he's trying to make a statement that we, that helps all understand that we all desperately need him. That he's the ultimate leader. And he uses broken humans to be leaders of the church. And it's just to keep us dependent on him. And as we've been going through these two key passages, just to remind us as we're working through what it means to be a member of the body of Christ. And um, the reason why I pull these two out are, are, are twofold. The first one is, I will build my church, Jesus said, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. When Jesus is building the church, the gates of hell will not prevail. And again, letting them build the church, and as he builds the church and he leads the church and we follow, he's going to lead us to serve. He's going to lead us to unity. He will confront us if we're disunified. He's going to convict us if we are pulling and we're isolating ourselves because He wants a unified church and He wants us functioning. And so He will build His church. And we have to let Him do it. And then the missional reminder, John 4, 35, Jesus is saying, don't you have a plan? It took four months until the harvest. I say, open your eyes and look at the field. They're right for harvest. And he's saying that the gospel is the point. Seeking and saving transform lives. That's the point. And he reminds us of the mission. And when we get off and we start, uh, we start fighting battles that don't matter, what has happened is we've forgotten this. We've forgotten the mission. We've forgotten the gospel. We've forgotten why the church exists. And so we need to be reminded he's building the church and be reminded of the mission. We need to continually remind ourselves of this. And so, praying for church leaders, it's a biblical idea. The Apostle Paul asked often for the church to say, and look at this, so just run through these few Romans 15, 30. says, Now I appeal to you, brothers, through our Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit, to join with me in fervent prayers to God on my behalf. And so he's asking people to pray for him. 2 Corinthians 1 11, you can join in helping with prayer for us. Ephesians 6, 19, pray also for me that the message may be given to me when I open my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. Colossians 4, at the same time, pray also for us that God may open the door for us for the message to speak the mystery of the gospel which I am in prison so that I may reveal it as I am required to speak. 1 Thessalonians 5, brothers, pray for us also. 2 Thessalonians 3, final brothers, pray for us that the Lord's message may spread rapidly in the honor just as with you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men for not all have faith. And you can see that he unapologetically is praying, pray for me, pray for my team. 
And again, I thank God for the team that we have here. Uh, and these folks, you guys just need to know, they, 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 they want God's wisdom. They pray for God's direction and God's wisdom. And you can see that Paul, he just unapologetically asked, pray for me, pray for the team that God would help them. And you can see that uh, even in the last one, that warfare is very intense. And so why is it so important to pray for your church leaders? What's the big deal around this? Why would Paul do this and ask for people to pray? And the short answer is that church leadership is very difficult. I heard a quote just the other day. It says, become acquainted with your struggles. One of the best ways to see God's strength. Church leadership is difficult. And as I mentioned before, we are all broken. Church leaders included frail people. We're called by God to be in the role of leading, but we are fallible people. And we're leading other fallible people. Doesn't that just sound weird? But this is nothing new. I mean, as you, as you look throughout history at the people that God would call to lead and, and what was happening, and we tend to romanticize um, leaders in the Bible. And, uh, you know, remember in Sunday school, you hear stories about their lives. But, you know, and, and you know, I know there's certain things as kids you're not going to talk about. You know, we, we talk about the strength of Samson, but come on, we're all real. In Sunday school class when you're a kid, you're not going to talk about all Samson's issues. Come on, you guys know the story. So, kids, you know, I mean, you know, you're, you're, you're just not going to go there. I mean, Samson has some problems. We love David, he killed the giant, but man, we still clear from Bathsheba in six days. You know, well, there's a lady taking a bath, and, you know, I mean, you just won't go there. I mean, this is in the Bible, and, but these are weak people that God chose, and we tend to romanticize them, but I, I encourage you to get your mind off, and actually be encouraged when you look at their lives, that they were broken in prayer. I mean, Moses, he tough times with the people. He had weaknesses. He tried to make excuses of why God couldn't use them, and I don't speak right, and I don't, and, and, and then he failed in so many ways. He made excuses again, and, and God said, you give men now. It's not about you, Moses. It's about me. And then the difficulties of leading the people where he's just, God, I love them, and I don't love them all at the same time. It's difficult. They love me, and they hate me. What's the deal? David, again, massive struggle. The prophets, you think that, you know, um, God was speaking, you know, tell the people this, but no, they're not going to listen to you. How do you like that job, an Old Testament prophet? You know, people go, oh, Lord, give me, give me you know, I want to be a prophet. I don't know if we do or not. Here's the, oh, you know, I mean, God several times is, you know, go tell them what I'm telling you. You're going to, I'm speaking audibly to you. Now, this is, I mean, this is a whole different level. I mean, now we have the Holy Spirit, He speaks to our heart, He speaks to us, the, the Word of God. But now, at that time, God would audibly speak, as I'm speaking to you, here's the message, go tell them what I told, told you to tell them. And by the way, after you tell them, they're not going to listen to you. They're going to hate you, they're not going to like you. Go tell them anyway. You know, it's like, I'm excited about going to work today, you know, this is exciting. And they would turn on, I mean, people would turn on them, and, and over and over, I mean, some of it's almost comical, but it's tragic, too. 
And the whole idea of Jeremiah, go tell the people they're going to go in captivity and tell the king you're going, you know, and, and, and he said, you're going to go and get loud, you're going to go in captivity, this is the word of God, no, we're not going to, and they end up going into captivity and they hate Jeremiah, throw him in a pit. Ahab is funny, you know, they, they said, you know, bring all the prophets here and are we going to win or not? Are we going to win the battle? And the prophets are like, you know, yes, you're going to win the battle, we're going to win the battle. And Ahab goes, well, you know, there's one prophet, and he says, we need to get a word from him next. And, uh, and his name is Messiah. But he never gives me a good prophet. I'll never get a good word from that guy. But go get him anyway. So Micaiah shows up, you know, it's kind of funny because they bring in all these other guys that say, you know, go, go, you're going to win. And, and here's Micaiah. And they say, all right, what's the word of the Lord? And he says, yeah, you're going to win. And he's just going to tell them what they want to hear. And Ahab says, you know, you need to tell us the truth. So he knows that he's got something different. But I go, okay, if you go into battle, you're going to be destroyed. And then they get mad at him for telling the truth. Does that sound it's like a sitcom? Tell us what, we know, you know, we know what your deal is, and then he's like, you're going to get destroyed if you go into battle. So they go, we hate him, we cast him off, we go into battle, and what happens? This is God's leader. Elijah, you know, Elijah with the great victory on Mount Carmel went right after that into the cross and, and asked God to kill you. Just kill you. It's all, it's all done. I'm done. I, I don't know what else to do. The disciples, I mean, we could go on and on about a sitcom with those guys. I mean, they wrestled with doubt. They wrestled with pride. Who can be the greatest? They were arguing about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. When Jesus was resurrected, he tells these ladies, and the ladies tell the disciples, I ah, know it can't be true. After he told them that the Son of Man's going to be great. But these were all leaders. The big thing is there was spiritual warfare and people were coming against the leaders. Paul, again, he admitted his struggles with the flesh. Romans 7, he said, I struggle. I do the things I don't want to do, the things I need to do. I'm, I find myself not doing that. But he boasted in his weakness. And yet all these were leaders. Again, spiritual warfare was real. People were trying to cause Paul damage. I mean, he calls people out by name in some of the letters. He said, they tried to do me harm. They tried to do damage to me. They tried to undermine their ministry. But he also said that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. That this is a spiritual battle that's going on here. Because ultimately, the enemy did not want the kingdom of God and the gospel to spread and the church to succeed. He didn't want the church to grow and be healthy. And it's no different today. And so, as we look at these biblical characters, we encourage because they were weak. My technique, my He's going to end it. Perfect. It happened, I didn't even know what was going on. Thank you, and Andrew has done so many amazing technology things around here, and a lot of times we just look at these guys when things are going bad. You know, like sound system. Come on, guys! But you know what? They do a phenomenal job. That I just thank God for those guys because I'm very, I know about this much, and uh, those guys know a lot more than me. But, uh, and so it's no different today. Um, there's actually a. Uh, there's a. The next slide I'm going to go to in just a second. It's some statistics about pastors, and you can go to the next uh, slide after. You can read that. I'll read these if you can't quite read them. So it's no different. Just to give you an idea, this is not to invoke pity for you. Um, this is just the reality of what's going on. 1,700 pastors leave the ministry each month. 
due to moral failure, spiritual burnout, or contention in the churches. And you're not misreading that. That's been a lot of data that has been collected, and uh, and, and they're leaving. They're leaving in, in, in mass. Fifty percent of pastors are so discouraged that they would leave the ministry if they could, but they have no other way of making a living. In other words, if we went to college, we got you know they went to um, seminary and got a ministry degree, and uh, and it's like you know that's all we're trained to do. Seventy percent of pastors constantly fight depression. Eighty percent believe pastoral ministry has negatively affected their family. Seventy percent say they have a lower self-image now than when they first entered ministry. Forty percent report serious conflict with a parishioner at least once a month. Ninety percent of the pastors report working between fifty-five to seventy-five hours per week. 80% of seminary and Bible school graduates who, who enter the ministry will leave the ministry within the first five years. 70% felt God called them to pastoral ministry before their ministry began, but after three years of ministry, only 50% still felt called. And then 80% of pastors' spouses wish their spouse would choose another profession. And so these numbers, again, the reality is a lot of what we're talking about when the enemy is fighting against churches. He does not want the gospel to go forward. He does not want the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God to succeed. And so, a part of what he does, obviously, disunity, obviously, to keep everyone from functioning where they're supposed to function, and then, you know, it burns out the few people who are doing the work. Um, but also, another thing that he does is he attacks leaders. So it's sobering. And it's contributing to the dying church. And so, what's going on that's causing this? And some of it, some of it's their own personal struggles. And, and again, I, I'm not trying to paint this as a one-sided thing. Or sometimes, you know, sometimes it's pastors bring stuff on themselves. Sometimes it comes from others. Sometimes it's a combination of both things. But here are some trends that contribute to these statistics. And I'm going to talk about these just for a moment. And these are not up there. I, I'm just going to kind of talk through of what causes why these numbers are there. Number one, unreal expectations. It's wanting the pastor or the leader to do things that they aren't biblically supposed to be doing. So the pastor or leader should, should do this or that. And if they don't, people might get offended if they don't, they're not doing this or that. And this causes... A, a, a two-sided thing. It says leaders tend to struggle with wanting to please everyone then. But Ephesians 4, we're given what the, it says the leaders of the church, they, it says that they should equip the people to do the work of the ministry. To equip the people to do the work, work of the ministry and not to do all the work of ministry themselves. Healthy churches are churches that... Again, every part of the body is functioning and doing what they're supposed to be doing. They are contributing um, with their time and their resources. But what happens is then their families suffer. And we, you know, we have seen this as an epidemic growing up. I think, and I, we, um, the denomination that we were a part of, um, the uh, 
the, the, the town that we met in and then were married in was the headquarters of the denomination that we grew up in. And so you have all of these executives and a lot of pastors, and we called it the Mecca, you know, of the, our denomination. And, you know, it kept me praying towards the southeast. I'm not really, I'm just kidding. Um, um, but we grew up around, and, and our youth group was a lot of, 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 of pastors' kids, tons of them. And what we saw happen, you know, now that I can look back and I said, yeah, this is true. Because we saw pastors that were burning, 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 and then their families getting neglected. Because there was so much expectation on them that they were not ministering to their family. And in fact, in a moment, we'll look at scripture that says that their families could be your first line of ministry. And so then we saw the kids get neglected, and we actually saw a lot of our peers who we are friends with, you know, on Facebook, and a lot of them struggle and are still struggling. I mean, horrible, sinful things, drug and alcohol rehab, not following God, and their dads were some of the big chiefs in this denomination. And it was an epidemic that we saw. And this is one of the reasons why. Number two is there's a frame of thought that that pastor is superhuman. And they don't have any problems or struggles. And they have it all together. And I'm not, again, I'm not saying, if you don't struggle, these let these go. I'm just saying these are perceptions. These are trends. Is that we have this mindset that the pastor has it all together. You're my leader. You can't be struggling. You need to help me. So this causes leaders, when there's this idea, this causes leaders to be guarded about being honest with their own faults and weaknesses. And so they keep up a, an appearance of having it all together. And when they crash and burn, it's common to hear this. We never thought that that would happen with that ministry. How many pastors and leaders on a national level have we seen crash and burn and people just are devastated? And, Part of it was because, and again, this is a two-sided thing that the people tend to, tend to think that they are, we elevate them, and if, I, I, we should honor leaders, and I'm not talking about that, but elevating them to a, an, un, an, an unholy place, that they're kind of this superhuman. Well, then what the problem is, is if a pastor gets lifted up like that for a while, he kind of likes that. And now I've got to keep the perception that I have it all together, and my family and I, we, we walk into church and we are the perfect family and there's no problems here. And we have smiles and but we know deep down inside that argument that we just had. Running around trying to get our kids ready for church and freaking out and then we get into the church building and go, hey, and then everybody's like, there's that perfect pastoral family. But this happens. Next is some people want in their leaders only what Jesus can give them. Our greatest and chief job as chief leaders is to continually point you to an ongoing, unconditionally surrendered life of Jesus and be connected to the body of Christ. That's what we want to, what we want to continually push you there. That you need Christ and you need each other. You need Christ and you need each other. It's not... And, not that you just need the pastor or the leaders to do something. Sometimes go to Ingram, who I respect and honor greatly, shared this story. 
about a lady who was in the hospital, and you know, he pastors a large church, and a lady was in the hospital, and he did not visit her, and she was highly offended that he did not come and visit her. When he heard, you know, through the grapevine that she was upset, and so he calls her after she was back, and he's like, um, and she said, yeah, you know, I'm, I was offended that you didn't come see me. He said, well, did anyone come see you? She said, oh, yeah, my, my life group came, and they, every day, and they brought me meals, and they were praying for me, and he's like, that's the point. That, that's a healthy connection with the body of Christ, that you have the people around you, it, that, that your support network and they minister one to another. That's the sign of a healthy church, actually. But because the pastor didn't, it was not, I wasn't truly visited. And he's saying, that, that has to change. Not, again, not that we don't ever visit and do those kind of things. We, we try to do that when we can. But that's why it's so important for each and every person to be connected with other parts of the body of Christ. If you're not connected in a functioning way, it's hard to know what's going on with your life. So Jesus sets it up this way, again, that we desperately need Him and we need one another. And so when we can't be there at times for you, when only He can, sometimes it causes disappointment in people. And the disappointment in the leaders that they couldn't or did not meet your need. Leaders that tend to fall into this, what they can tend to do is they draw people to themselves instead of pointing them to Christ. That's a, that's a weakness that leaders could have is that you want to be liked so much and I draw you to myself. And, I'm, and then what happens is that I'm not there or I leave or I step out of your life. That person says, hey, they can't function without that person. That's how we need to be invested every day. Fourth is role confusion. Sometimes people see their leaders as that's the most important role in the church. Now the pastor, that's, that, he's, he's the top of the chain. You just, let me just clear that up. It's not true. This can lead to disillusionment when we have that idea. It can create hard feelings, especially toward paid staff. And maybe people don't say it out loud, but they might think of what we pay you, therefore we own you. We pay you, so you should be doing this or that. And this is just an unhealthy trend that has happened in churches. We are not the most important. I am not the top of the chain. As I said before, the way Jesus came, it's not the corporate ladder that is in our culture. The ladder is not like this. The kingdom of God is like this. And the pastor has one of many roles. And I need to function just like you need to function in my role. And our leaders have to do that. And so these are trends that are happening in dying churches. Fifthly, is the lack of accountability in leaders. And this is where it falls to leaders. Because um, all of these things can happen. They can lead to a perfect storm of a leader who isolates themselves and is on their way to a fall. They're burning out, they're, they're hurting, and then they have no one to talk to, no one to ask them the hard questions. I just read a startling stat not too long ago that church leaders, this is church leaders, are regularly viewing pornography, 50% of them. Church leaders. 
And again, that's why famous preachers that built themselves up to the top of the heap, and most of them have that, you know, their, their manifestation of the fall maybe was different, but they all have that common thing that they built themselves up on top of the heap, and no one spoke into their life, and they even have a false sense of accountability. And I could give you the names, and everyone would shake their head because you've heard the story. And it's too common. And part of that is we elevate and we almost exalt people. Well, they have that amazing, special anointing, and they are, do not exalt people. It's unhealthy. And we tend to do it in the church world. We run here and there, and that's what causes us, well, that guy's got this special anointing, so we're going to run to that crusade. I'm not saying we shouldn't go to crusades and support people and go for, to be ministered to. That's not what I'm saying. But when we get in this tendency of where we treat them and exalt them, and they become almost like godlike rock star status driving around and private jets and having five homes all across the world. That's a problem. It's a real problem, and it's happened pervasive in the body of Christ is because we've exalted them instead of Jesus. And so leaders feel the weight and, they caught in the constant discernment and it takes its toll. Now I want to take a few minutes and give you some of my own confessions. I want to share my heart with you a little bit. First of all, I don't want that. I'm going I'm to get deeper. I'm going to get deeper than that. So I, uh, that's it. You guys can be just here. I just needed to get that off my chest. So. Dogs rock. That's a battle that will never end. It's like, unity, let's agree to love each other. Let's agree to love each other. You guys know that you're cast out like God anyway, so... That's not what I was going to say. I was just, that was fun. Um, first of all, insecurity. I've dealt with insecurity my whole life. Um, and I'm hoping that when, as I share this, that, you know, uh, part of it, not to just let you down, but to allow you to into my heart a little bit. Growing up the way I did, it just, it, there was some things that happened that fostered a lot of insecurity in me as a child. Um, and, and I'm not going to get into all what caused that, but Unless you guys have time to listen to me, I'm just going to lay down here. I'm just kind of. <clears throat> the reason why pastors don't go to psychology as much is we do every week we have our own psychology. We're just like, what, please listen to me. What, what was that? <laughs> I hate if I got a cat. No thanks. But I dealt with insecurity my whole life. Um, and the thing about insecurity is it feeds the fear of man and man pleasing. And that was just something that I struggle with. I hate letting people down. I hate it. It just destroys me. And you can ask my wife this if you want more information. If you want to pull her off to the side and get a little more of the, uh, my dirty laundry, you can ask her. Um, but I had a hard time just standing for stuff and, 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 and you know, like, my principles, and, and because I just didn't want to let people down, and I, I didn't want to make you think that I was, you know, dealing dealing with insecurity. So that, that fear of man and man plays into I hate letting you down, and when I let people down, it just kills my heart. And then God asked me to be a pastor. That's what we did here, and I know that I've let people down. I know that I've hurt probably some of you. I can tell you this, my intention is never just to purposely hurt people. I, I, I just couldn't do it. 
Sometimes we're just like cats. I think we're a cat. But I know that I've done it, and, and for that, I please forgive me for the times that maybe I hurt you in some way, or I there's a misunderstanding, or maybe I didn't say something clarity, or maybe whatever it was. Please forgive me. Because a part of that, there, you know, there's no off switch to ministry. Now, I found that was one of the hard lessons that I learned, and they talked about it with the conference that Athena and I went to, and, and it's so true. You know, when you're working some jobs, and I know some of you guys, you work jobs and you never have an off switch to, so I'm not just saying that we're the only ones. Please don't think that. Um, but there's constantly something that you can ponder on and think about in ministry. This happened or that happened or the phone call that I just got. So there's no office, there's something to consider, something that you're burdened about. When people get offended, it's hard not to take it personally. And so that's another weakness, is I, I tend to be offended at people's offense toward me. You're offended with me? Okay, well, I'm offended with you. How about that? And I have to fight that. I have fears. One of my greatest fears is the fear of failure. And so as a, as a kid, you know, you, you, uh, you tend to not take risks where you probably should have because you just don't want to fail. And I somehow was, you know, the, the, the fear of failure, I felt like was just that, 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 that defined my value. And so that word that carried in is much familiar to what you meant anyway. Fear of failure. And so I would guard myself to try to stay where I could succeed the best. And it creates this false sense. And I, you know what ultimately it is? It's pride. I have a fear of letting people down. A true fear. I fear sometimes that if I'm going in the right direction or if I've made the right decision. I despise conflict. And I get a witness from some of you Scandinavians. Some people love it. Have you ever met people that just love to like have conflict? I just don't get that. I, I don't get that at all. I, I cannot stand conflict. It, it, it eats at me. I wrestle with it. After I do it, I'm bombarded with the fear that I'll handle it the right way. If you love it, um, God bless you. But please don't talk to me. Um, I'm learning how to do it, but it's hard. And as, you know, especially as a pastor, and you'll see one of the passages in a moment that we're, one of the things that we have to do is we have to challenge people at times. And so it's hard, and, and I sometimes run from it when I know I could probably do it. I struggle with asking for help. Again, that's really been pride. It's, it's a false humility. Because again, you, you don't want people to think, well, he's weak, man. I didn't know my past was that. that. And, and, and I, just, I, don't, I, I just don't want to live that way. And so it makes you self-reliant. And then you don't share the load. And then it's hard for you guys to take on sometimes ministry when your past is self-reliant. 
when I'm hurt or I'm disappointed, I have a tendency to step down and then shut out. It's very real for me. That's where I, I, I sometimes my secret shut down fantasy is to go up into a mountain, live in a cabin, and fish at a little creek forever. You know, just, and I know that that is like escapism and it's not healthy, but that's my tendency is when I'm hurt or disappointed that I step down, but then my tendency is to shut out people. And that's not healthy. I'm just being real, you know. You feel, you feel hurt, you feel on edge, and sometimes, you know, you're walking through the store and you see that person, and I, I'll die behind the ship to hide from like covert ninja, roll, you know, slide. Please don't, I do not want to talk to them today. It's very real. So why do I, why do I share all this? And, and again, just like Paul, I want to boast in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can be manifested in me. My heart is not to draw people to myself, but to point them to Jesus always. I confess these things because I need Jesus. I need a Savior just like you. I'm broken just like you. The church, if we, if we get if one thing figured out, if we can just say this is not like the books, is we're not a country club, we're not a group of people that have it all together. We're a bunch of broken people that need Jesus and we're on a journey together. Sharing these things, I, again, it's not to pity me, but to pray for me. They're important to pray for us as believers. A healthy church doesn't mean lack of issues. A lot of people think, well, that's a healthy church. They've got it all together. If you get on the inside of that church, you're going to find out they don't have it all together. But they can love each other. The health is they love each other through not having it all together. That's what makes a happy family. That's what makes a happy marriage is that we don't get along all the time, but we love each other through it. But there is something about the health of the church that is connected to the health of its leaders. As the leaders build the church together. And so, again, we're not more important. We're just one of many roles. But some of the leaders are on the front lines. And the enemy wants to take us out. And he does intensify his strategy against leaders. You know the old saying, if you take out the officers, everyone else will go into confusion. So there's this idea in warfare is to take out the leaders. I've referred to Nehemiah, you know, and I'll just briefly touch on that. You know, God came and gave Nehemiah the vision, and he'll give leaders the vision and say, all right, go now, go to the people, get leaders around you, then implement the vision among the people, and then everyone work together on the wall. And it's a beautiful picture of unity. It's a beautiful Old Testament picture of how the church should function. Everyone has their role. No one was just standing over their arms crossed saying, I'm not working. You can do my job too. Everyone had their section. They were working as families, as couples, and they said, We were committed to this. Next to them was another family. Next to them was another person or family. And they, everyone was doing their job. God gave the vision to Nehemiah. He gave the vision to the people. They worked together. But then the enemy was trying to, they were trying to several times take out Nehemiah. To take out the top, and then the vision might die. And so they tried to draw him into super meetings where they wanted to assassinate him. And so let's look at how to pray for leaders. And I'm going to work through these very quickly. Let's go to the... All right, 1 Timothy 3. 
This is about church leaders. This is a great passage, and this is the longest one. But it says, here's a question to say, whoever aspires to be an overseer, that's a leader, elder, desires a noble task. Now, the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him, and he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? That's directly related that our first line of ministry is to our family. He must not be a recent convert or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. Verse 7, let's the next. He must have good, a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. In the same way, deacons are to be worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, and not pursuing the dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truth of faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested, and then if there is nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. In the same way, the women are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. A deacon must be faithful to his wife and must manage his children and his household well. Those who have served will gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. And that, you know, every time I read that, again, Paul would write in such a way as to make you feel overwhelmed and say, there's no way I can do that without God. There's no way I can do that without the power of the Holy Spirit. It is a load. That's just like a love chapter. Love this way. And you're like, how does anyone love that way? And Jesus says, without me, you can't. Allow my spirit to love in and through you. You're going to need me to love that way. You're going to need me to lead that way. And so what did he say? Pray for us. Pray for our integrity. Pray for our marriages, as Paul says. Pray that we would have, as leaders, self-control. Pray that we would teach the right way and teach the gospel, teach sound doctrine. Paul says that several times that we teach sound doctrine. Pray for us against the enemy's traps, as Paul mentioned. Pray for our families. And ultimately, pray for the unity of the church. Because this, again, that's how it functions. Let's go to the next one. These are going to just be kind of more rapid here. Kind of keep hitting the arrow. There you go. First Timothy 4.16, guard your life and your doctrine closely, because if you do, you will save yourself and your fears. So in other words, don't just, don't just say it from the pulpit, live it. That's what Paul tells Timothy. And so pray for us. Pray that our message and our life won't contradict each other. 2 Timothy 4, 1-2. In the presence of God and Jesus Christ, we will judge the living and the dead, and in the view of His appearing and His kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season, out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. Here's that word. As leaders, sometimes we have to correct and rebuke. That's the not fun part of what we do as leaders. But pray that we would preach the word. Pray that when we do it, like he said, that we would do it in the right way, in the right spirit, and with great patience. That we would not just do it out of anger. Let's go to the next one, First Peter. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings who also was here in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherd of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, 
So we're called as leaders to watch over the flock. What does a shepherd do when he watches? We, we, we have to be guarded for, for, against wolves, against people that might have malicious intent. And that's so hard. It's a balance to say we want to guard you, we don't want to micromanage you, but we want to, because we care about you. We care about what's coming at you as, as, people, as people that have come to this church and that we love greatly. And so we're called to watch over you. And he says, not because you must, but because you're willing. And that God will give us a willing heart as we serve you. And I always say, you know, and, and with all the, the toughness of this, I love to do what I do. I, I love doing what I do. And, I, I, and it's something I get to do. And I, that's a ministry. Ministry is what I get to do. And it's a privilege. And it's an honor. And I do feel God calling me. And I'm not a part of that 80% of 70% and this and that. Um, there have been times and struggles, definitely, that God has been gracious. And I love doing what I do. He said, don't pursue this on game. Pray for us that we will not get into that whole thing of greed and, and uh, what can happen to so many leaders. Pray that we would not lord it over people and, 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 and become dictators and harsh. We don't want to do that, but be an example to the flock. And then the last three are probably the most important, and I'm going to close with this. Let's go to the next one. Several of these were before, but here's the big thing of why Paul would say, pray for a leader. Because the gospel was at stake. Because there are people that need Jesus so desperately. Listen to what Paul says. He says, Pray also for me that the message may be given to me when I open my mouth to make known the boldness and mystery of the gospel. So he said, pray for me that I'll be able to give the gospel, that not just me, but we as a church would be able to give the message of the gospel to those out there. But pray for us as leaders that we continually stay on the message of the gospel. Colossians 4. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open the door for us for the message, to speak the mystery of the Messiah for which I'm in prison, so that I may reveal it as I am required to speak. And here's Paul sitting in prison. And he said, you know, I'm in prison for this, but keep praying for us that the message will go forth because God's not done with this yet. And even in a time of hardship, even in a time of prison, he said the gospel is still alive. Second Thessalonians 3 is the last one. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the Lord's message may spread rapidly and beyond. Isn't that great prayer? Pray that the gospel would spread rapidly and be honored, just as it was with you. And so, in Thessalonica, you know, the, the message was spreading rapidly. A lot of people were coming to know Christ, and people were excited. Remember those times when you yourself surrendered to Christ, and there was excitement, and it was spreading. And it's a church for that. And then he says, that, and that we might be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. And there was a reality to Paul, because he even, again, he mentions people by name. Alexander, you know, the accomplishment, he meant to do me harm. And there were people that were out to undermine us and undercut us, and they were fighting against what we were doing. And Paul, I mean, he calls them out by name. And again, understanding that our battle is not against them, but there is a reality that people will slander, people will 
try to undercut and people will envy or whatever their motives are, people will try to damage what's going on. And ultimately, the enemy wants to damage the gospel. And that's what he's saying. Remember the mission. Remember it's about transformed lives. And so we earnestly desire for prayer. We love this church. We love what God's doing in this church. We are not perfect. We're going to blow it. We're going to make mistakes. We will offend you. You just need to get ready for that. Our hearts are not to do it purposely, but it will happen. So let's love each other. As Paul says, make allowance for me and pray that I will make allowance for you. Pray for unity. Pray for peace. Pray that the leaders will fulfill what God has called us to do and ultimately that the gospel will go for and lives will be touched through this church. Again, not for the name of this church, not for people to say how awesome we are, but how awesome God is. And you know, prayer helps unity. When you make it a point to pray for people, even that's why, remember when Jesus says, pray for your enemies? Because when you begin to pray for them, it changes your heart toward them. And so if you have a fence for people, the first line is to pray for them. Genuinely. If God, if I'm going to pray for them, if you would just wreck them upside their head. You know, not, not like that. God gets their attention. You know they need it. And those kind of angry prayers, you know. Lord, you know. Um, a lot of times He wants to change your heart. Regardless of their response, regardless of what they do or do not do, it's all about our hearts and His work on us. That's why it's so funny sometimes, you know, like even as a, a pastor, you have this message and they told us to preach it. They said, don't, don't preach to the people like that that are mad at me and mad at haters. Don't preach to them. It's always the time that a lot of times you'll have a loaded up sermon ready to give them and they won't be there that time. And then you just wasted your week. And so sometimes when you hear a sermon, don't think of the five people that needed to hear that. Say, God, what are you speaking to me? Allow me to change your heart. And when you're praying, it helps unity. It helps you not to criticize those that you're praying for. God, help them touch me, touch me, help my response to them. Or even if they hate me, help me to love them. And it'll be amazing what we see God do. And ultimately pray, guys, that the gospel will go forth to change and transform lives through the power of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. We stand with you. Now, as we close today, um, just at the uh, at when we're done, if, 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 um, those couple of words that were given earlier. If you want prayer for that, prayer for anything, that uh, maybe a few of our leaders can just come up to the front and pray with you, that would be awesome. We would love to do that. We'd be honored to do that if you need prayer so you can just make your way up here after I'm, I'm, I'm finished praying. We you pray with you? God, thank you for, again, for this day, for speaking to us. Thank you, Lord, that you are working in our midst. Thank you, God, for how you do it, Lord. We don't get it sometimes. We are amazed that you use broken people. But Lord, ultimately, I think that what it does is point us to the reality of how much we need you, how desperate we are for you. Lord, help all of our hearts today, God. Help us 
as a church body. Lord God, help us as leaders to be faithful to that which you call us to be, not lording it over, but guarding and serving the people. I pray, God, for Lord, for us folks, so God, that as they look to the leaders at times, Lord, that they would just have a, just a healthy perspective, Lord, to pray for us because we need you and we're broken as well. And Lord, I just thank you, God, and praise you for your love and your mercy. Thank you, God, that you want the gospel to go forth and I pray that many would come to know you, the life-transforming message of the gospel of Jesus. Lord, we pray for other churches and other pastors today. You touch them and minister to them and pour out your grace and your strength. We love you, God. We honor you. And we thank you again for this day. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you and have a wonderful, wonderful day.